that poisonous cloud that drifted across no man's land at Ypres in April 1915, saw the birth of chemical warfare. What's the story of gas in the trenches of the Great War, and what can we find of it on the battlefields today? If you stop the average person in the street and ask them to name one weapon, one aspect of the Great War that they were most familiar with, that defined that war for them, it would probably be poison gas. Gas really came to stand for the nightmare of the war in the trenches. Landscapes smashed to oblivion by shellfire, the sun glinting on vicious, cruel barbed wire and thick, poisonous clouds drenching that battlefield, consuming the men within it. This is the nightmare of the First World War, a nightmare depicted in the writing, the literature and the poetry of the Great War. Wilfred Owen, that everlasting voice for better or worse of the Great War, himself had seen what gas attacks were like, how they would affect the troops that served alongside him in the 2nd Manchester Regiment. And in his poem, perhaps one of his most famous poems, Dulce et Decorum Est, this stanza really comes to stand, I think, for what most people perceive gas in the First World War to be like. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. And as the verses of that poem moves on, he talks about white eyes writhing in the soldier's face, his face like a devil sick of sin and froth corrupted lungs. And I'm sure that many generations of people studying the war poets, whether for history or English, will have been haunted by that poem, haunted by the thoughts of a gas attack. Owen was from a middle-class family. He was an officer. He experienced the terror of gas warfare on the Western Front, but does he speak for them all? When I was interviewing veterans in the late 80s and early 90s, I interviewed quite a few that had been gassed. I've mentioned the story of Malcolm Vivian before. He was an officer who'd served with the Royal Garrison Artillery, and when he was at Monchiot-Bois, just north of Gomacourt, he'd been gassed in 1916 by a type of gas that smelt of pineapple. And the smell of pineapple would always take him back to that moment when he was asphyxiated by gas, thankfully obviously not killed, but the sensation of being gassed, of choking on that gas, of being evacuated, feeling like he was drowning somehow, was something that haunted him, and the smell of pineapple would take him back to that moment, triggering his memories of that awful episode in his war experience. And Harry Coates, who was someone that I used to visit on a regular basis, Harry had served from 1914 with the, initially with the 2nd Battalion of the, the London Scottish 
and then he was posted to the 1st Battalion in France in 1915 and joined a rifle company. He went over the top in his first and last battle as such as an infantry soldier at Luz on the 25th of September 1915. Then they were wearing the hood-type masks, the P-helmets, which were rolled up on top of their heads, and as they went over, the battlefield was thick with gas, so the order came round to pull the mask down and wear it properly as they went into action. He described it as a very claustrophobic experience being inside that hooded gas mask going into action with your rifle in your hands and your bayonets fixed and the enemy machine guns blazing away in front as you moved across no man's land. One of his best pals was killed alongside him and he passed, he looked down, you couldn't stop, you could never stop. These were the orders that you were given, don't stop to tend to the wounded, don't stop to bury the dead keep moving forward others will do those tasks but he paused for a moment and looked down and saw these two eyes staring into infinity out through the glass eyepieces of the gas mask a sight that would never never leave him and later on in that attack the helmets they wore the countermeasures they gave against gas were not indefinite they would wear out the chemicals in the hood the later filters in the gas mask They'd wear out, and later that day on the 25th of September, Harry was gas, was choking in the front line, and was evacuated as a gas casualty from the front line. His lungs for the rest of the war, probably in some ways for the rest of his life, were never quite the same. He was sent back to a base hospital, patched up by a medical officer deemed fit for active service, and when he returned to his unit, he was still coughing and spluttering and wheezing, and thankfully he came across an officer who was sympathetic to the condition that he had, and because he'd passed the Pittman's typing course before the war, they transferred him onto the brigade staff, and he became a sergeant in the brigade headquarters for the rest of the war. So that's two of many stories that I could tell about veterans who were gassed, and whenever they spoke about it, and it took a long while with those veterans to get them to talk about that experience for both Malcolm and Harry it was one of the worst episodes of their war and they didn't speak about it lightly so it's clear that gas was a defining moment in a soldier's experience it's something that has come to stand for the war in the eyes of a wider public but what is the the real story of gas its development and use in the First World War, and what can we find of evidence of that gas and the history of gas attacks on the battlefield today? And that's what we'll look at in this podcast. In terms of the history of gas warfare, the properties of gas, poison gas, as an asphyxiant, something that could asphyxiate you, choke you and kill you, was known throughout the 19th century. And its attempted weaponization to create it into some kind of weapon resulted in 1899, the meeting of the Hague Conference and the Hague Convention that outlawed its use as a weapon on the battlefields. Article 4, Section 2, Declaration Concerning the Prohibitation of the Use of Projectiles with a Sole Object to Spread Asphyxiating Poisonous Gases. This declaration states that in any war between signatory powers, 
the parties will abstain from using projectiles, the sole object of which is the diffusion of asphyxiating or deleterious gases ratified by all major powers except the United States. So that meant that in terms of European powers, the European powers that would go to war in 1914, all of them had agreed not to use poison gas. It was outlawed. But many nations prior to the Great War had developed gas-based weapons, mainly employing tear gas. Tear gas was a, a different type of gas weapon. It was used to suppress people in riots, for example. The Paris police had employed it before the First World War, and the French would use that type of tear gas, or had stocks of that type of tear gas, within its own military as well. So this wasn't a gas that could be sent onto a battlefield to choke someone to death. It would incapacitate them to allow one force to overrun another. So gas, poison gas being outlawed, did not stop military powers looking at gas or types of gas as a potential weapon. But when those powers went to war in 1914, and we've often said this on the podcast, everyone was prepared for war in 1914, just not the type of war that the Great War would rapidly become. They were prepared for a war of movement, a quick war. In Britain was the phrase, over by Christmas, and there was a belief that this would be the case, a rapid campaign on the European mainland ending in some kind of decisive moment. But that's not what the war of 1914 became. There were periods of open warfare, of classic open warfare, the Battle of the Frontiers with the French army marching in columns not dissimilar to their Napoleonic grandfathers. But this was a war in which the power of industry, the power of industrial firepower was readily demonstrated on the battlefields and if you fought the wars of old you'd suffer the consequences the French losing tens of thousands of men a day in those battles of the frontiers of August 1914 but that open warfare did not last for long just weeks after the battles in the fields on the Belgian Franco border both sides were digging in outside Paris on the Aisne Heights. The first trenches were dug there. And by the autumn, it was static warfare. The Germans could go no further. They dug in, and the Allies, along 450 miles of what became the Western Front, dug in as well. The French army had the stocks of tear gas grenades, and it appears that some of them were used in that early 1914 1915 period of trench warfare but this was not poison gas it was used I would guess to capture a position by throwing grenades into it to overwhelm the troops that were in there with tear gas to allow a French assault to follow suit and capture the ground and it wasn't just the French who were looking at tear gas the British looked at it as well they developed what was called an SK grenade SK standing for South Kensington, where they dug a trench and developed this gas and weaponised it by putting it into what was essentially a jam tin bomb, as they called them at the time, by using empty tins of jam on the battlefield with a bit of gun cotton and a wick fuse thrown at the enemy to blow them up. In this case, 
you'd have the tear gas in there and use the canister to throw that tear gas into a confined space to fill it full of the gas to overwhelm the enemy. And they also, aside from the grenades, looked at testing it with 4.5-inch howitzer shells so you could fire the tear gas at a key location, a precursor to how gas would eventually be used for the bulk of the First World War. The Germans began to use it too. They added irritants to 10.5-centimetre shrapnel shells, and these were used against British and Indian troops at Neuve-Chapelle and while cases of soldiers with wounds caused by some kind of irritant were noted, the cause of that irritant wasn't really investigated, and the British seemed to be unaware that the Germans had used a type of, in inverted commas, gas shell against them in that Battle of March 1915. But the real development of poison gas to asphyxiate and choke and kill soldiers was something that was developed in Germany. And that development was led by a chemist called Professor Fritz Haber. He was a Prussian-born Jew who was Professor of Physical Chemistry at Karlsruhe University in 1914. Haber was a devout German nationalist and he pushed for the use of chlorine gas as a weapon. For the Germans, the war had become a total krieg, a total war, and they felt that any and Every weapon was justified in the pursuit of that total war to defeat their enemies. And his idea was to use chlorine gas to be released from cylinders on the battlefield to create a gas cloud that would overwhelm an enemy force. Why chlorine and why cylinders? Well, chlorine gas is a fairly easily produced gas it's poisonous, it asphyxiates, it can kill. It smells of a kind of pepper, pineapple-y kind of smell, which is probably the type of gas that Malcolm Vivian breathed in at Monchy Aubois in 1916. It tasted metallic when you breathed it in, and it stung the throat. Breathing it in caused the lungs to form hydrochloric acid, and it was therefore destructive, terribly destructive, to internal tissue and the men who breathed it in in great quantities it felt like they were drowning it would create liquid in the lungs and it would feel that they'd swallowed a huge amount of water and they were literally drowning in the fluid that was in their lungs the gas wasn't just easy to produce it was easy to store and even more importantly in the canisters in the gas cylinders that harbour proposed to use on the battlefield it was easy to transport, to move from place to place. We often speak about war by timetable in the First World War, the importance of trains, and the Germans knew that they could produce it in Germany, ship it by train to both the Western and the Eastern Front, and use it on the battlefield, and take these canisters by train to railheads, by truck or wagon to the battlefield, and then be carried up by troops into the forward area, into the front-line trenches. This led to the formation of a German pioneer company specially charged with using the gas. It was at one stage named after its commanding officer, Peterson, but as its strength grew to 1,600 officers and men, it became Pioneer Regiment Number 35. It would be employed with the task of moving this gas 
up onto the battlefield and preparing it for its use and then releasing it when the time conditions allowed. The gas would be stored, the gas produced in Germany would be stored in 6,000 large cylinders, each one holding 88 pounds of chlorine gas and a further 24,000 smaller cylinders, each of them holding 44 pounds of chlorine gas. The battlefield chosen for their employment was Flanders, the ground facing the city of Ypres defended them by French and British and the first major empire forces to arrive, Indians and Canadians. This ground was chosen by the Germans and preparations to place the gas cylinders in the front line began in February and March of 1915. The cylinders were not just brought up, placed in a trench and then the valve turned on and the gas came out. The gas would dissipate, would spread too widely. So the system developed by Harbour and the others involved in this was to place the cylinders essentially on the firing step of the trench and then build a piping system that would be built underneath and up in front of the parapet, the front of the trench so that you had a whole number of pipes spread out in a given area coming from one gas cylinder and then another one alongside it and another one alongside that. So the gas would be piped up through these probably lead pipes underneath the parapet and it would then form as a cloud in front of the trench and then the wind would have to be blowing in the right direction to carry it across the battlefield to the enemy positions beyond. The work to install these gas cylinders was not without danger. Regular shelling by the enemy, whether that be French or British, took out some of the cylinders and killed and injured some of the men from the Pioneer Company. The Germans at the same time were developing gas masks because if they were going to use gas on a battlefield, they needed protection for their own troops if that assault that would follow the use of the gas was to be successful. You can't gas an enemy position with chlorine gas which would hang around in areas like trenches or shell holes and not give your own troops some protection. So a German gas mask with a screw-in filter, two big glass eyepieces to see through, rubberized straps to pull over the back of your head and secure and put the mask in place. All of that was developed in preparation for the attack so the Germans had their own counter gas measures, a gas mask, for their troops to take into battle with them. And with preparations finished by mid-April of 1915, 1,600 large gas cylinders and 4,130 small gas cylinders were now in place, ready to launch this attack. Attack dependent, you'll remember, on the weather conditions, because if you're forming a gas cloud, there's got to be the right conditions to carry that gas across the battlefield and as far as the Germans were concerned the wind was blowing in the right direction at 5 p.m. on the 22nd of April 1915 when they released their gas the wind was blowing in the direction of the city of Ypres and the gas the green chlorine gas assembled in front of the trenches as the valves were released and drifted slowly across no man's land towards the enemy positions beyond. That day, the 22nd of April 1915, was really the birth of chemical warfare. 
Jumping back a bit for a moment, on the 14th of April, so about a week or so before, Private Algus Jaeger of the 234th Reserve Infantry Regiment deserted from the German lines. Now, what caused him to desert isn't known, and deserters were not uncommon. On both sides, there are accounts of British soldiers deserting to the enemy in the Battle of Boom Ravine in 1917 and giving up the plans for the attack, for example. Another story for another day, but deserters on the battlefield were not uncommon. And this man had deserted and he came over to the French lines and surrendered to men from the 4th Chasseurs close to the village of Langemark in that northeastern sector of the Eat battlefield. He was interrogated and, of course, he carried with him a gas mask and he revealed that a gas attack was planned sometime soon. Now, despite this evidence, and he wasn't the only German prisoner to give up this information to the French, the French did not believe it. They didn't believe that a gas attack was possible, and they didn't believe that it was about to take place. They did share the intelligence that they gathered from these men with the British, who also could not believe that the Germans would use gas given the Hague Convention. So no real counter-preparations were made in case of an enemy gas attack, a German gas attack. Many just had no idea as to how you would counter that, or even what a gas attack looked like. What would it appear as on the battlefields? There was no sense of that at the time, because this was a weapon that had never been experienced by anybody. But on the 22nd of April 1915, which in terms of the British official history of the Great War is the opening day of the Second Battle of Ypres, they found out. On that day, the green cloud, the green cloud that the chlorine gas formed when it was released from the cylinders through those pipes and formed on the parapet of the German trenches, drifted towards the trenches held by the 87th French Division. They were territorial soldiers, older men, men who'd served in the military before the war, gone on to the reserve and were now territorials. Alongside them was the 45th Algerian Division, a French colonial division with units from the Zouaves and the Tyrolleurs. These French positions were close to the village of Langemark, that was behind their front, and across to St Julian and Zonnebeek was the 1st Canadian Division, newly arrived on the Western Front, and alongside them, the British 28th Division. Now, this was a regular army formation that was made up of battalions of British regiments that were in the far-flung corners of the British Empire and were one of a number of such formations formed by these units when they were brought back to England at the outbreak of the war and formed into infantry divisions. They, too, had only been on the Western Front for a matter of a few months, having arrived in the winter of 1914-15. The gas was principally launched against the French positions, and the wind was blowing in exactly the right direction to carry it over their front line, their support line, and completely overwhelm their troops. There were no protections for the soldiers to counteract the, the gas, the effects of the gas, and huge clouds of this green chlorine gas overwhelmed the defenders, the territorials, the Zouaves, the Tyrolleurs. Men were seen choking to death. It caused panic, understandable panic, amongst the survivors and the French line 
broke. It's estimated that over a thousand French soldiers were killed in this gas attack and perhaps well over 2,000, maybe even 3,000 wounded, gassed and taken prisoner. So it caused significant French casualties in the opening phase of the attack and led to the collapse of that line around Langemark, enabling the German assault troops following behind the gas to push forward and overrun those French trenches and advance onwards, threatening the flanks, the sides of the Canadian and the British positions, and also threatening Ypres. The gas drifted across into the positions held by those Canadian and British soldiers, and the Canadians in particular made a desperate stand around a position known as Vancouver Corner, were slowly pushed back and defended the ground around St Julian, and beyond that, Shell Trap Farm, as it was known then, Mouse Trap Farm later on, and Kitchener's Wood is where the Canadians slowed down and stopped eventually that German advance. But in the opening moments of the battle, in the first two days of the battle, from the 22nd to the 24th of April 1915, the 1st Canadian Division alone lost over 2,000 men killed in action, many of them from the gas, and over 4,500 wounded, gassed, and prisoners of war. 6,500 casualties in just two days, and saw the virtual destruction of those brigades that held the line in the opening moments of that second Battle of Ypres. It was clear with the use of this gas against Allied troops, the battlefield had changed forever. But how to counter this gas, how to protect your troops, and it's the development of gas masks, of gas protection, that we'll look at next. If you use gas as a weapon, you obviously need ways to protect your troops from that gas with a mask, a gas mask. And the Germans, as we've said, developed one in preparation for this offensive using chlorine gas to protect their troops as they went forward across the battlefield in pursuit of the gas advancing on the enemy's lines. But what did the British and the French have when suddenly they were thrown into the reality of gas warfare? In the British and Canadian forces on the ground around Ypres, there was what essentially we could call the Mark I gas mask. And this was one of a number of different things. A first field dressing, a sock, a handkerchief or a cotton bandolier. And what the men would do with these, they all have the same kind of property. They can absorb liquid and hold it there for a while and then the actual artefact itself can be held against the face, whether that's the cotton wadding of the of the field dressing or the handkerchief can be pushed up against the nose and the mouth or the sock can be used for the same purpose. And in the 8th Battalion Canadian Infantry, they were the ones who came up with the idea of using a cotton bandolier, which normally carried clips of 303 ammunition. That could be compressed and the tapes of it could be used to tie around the soldier's head and you created an improvised mask a pad in which a liquid could be soaked to give some anti-gas measures. And what was that liquid? Well, it was one of two things, because all of these, whether filled dressing, sock, handkerchief or bandolier, had to be dipped and soaked in either bicarbonate of soda 
or urine. And in some cases, soldiers were told to urinate, to pee onto their handkerchiefs, to pee onto those field dressings or onto the socks to create that Mark I gas mask and then hold that urine-soaked item up against their face. And I would guess that there was plenty of impetus if you were an ordinary soldier seeing one of these green clouds drifting towards you. There was plenty of impetus to urinate onto your handkerchief or whatever it was. But that was the kind of early mask they had as the army had to react very, very quickly to the conditions on the battlefield with gas now as a weapon of war. Now, this was all very ad hoc. Heath Robinson, they might have called it at the time, and the masks were improvised on the battlefield. So when it was clear that gas was not going to go away, that it was going to be used again and again, and even during the Second Battle of Ypres, it was used on several occasions, slightly better versions of these improvised masks were prepared behind the lines using cotton material to create a pad that could be fixed to the face, perhaps with elasticated straps or some ties. So rather than rely on socks and handkerchiefs and everything else that would be filthy dirty and run out very quickly, and the provision of the chemicals for them to be dipped into would probably not be readily available directly on the battlefield itself. This was done behind the lines, and then these masks were taken up to the trenches. Back in Britain, the Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener, met with experts on chemistry and members of the Royal Engineers to discuss what kinds of more effective measures would be developed to counteract the gas and what types of protection would be manufactured and issued to the troops on the battlefields. And quickly, a type of mask was initially developed and an order for 30,000 of these was put in and this was what was called the black veiling respirator. It was a cotton mask soaked in a hypo solution with protection for separate protection for the eyes because protecting the eyes was quite important that the chlorine gas would get in the eyes and it would irritate them and cause the soldiers to rub their eyes perhaps temporary blindness in inverted commas but certainly reduce the fighting capabilities of the soldiers so to protect the eyes was an important part of whatever mask would be produced and this what you could describe as roughly the mark ii gas mask i suppose was one up from using the bandoliers or the socks or the field dressings it was a proper prepared pad with the chemicals already in it and something that you could protect your eyes with as well and meanwhile the french rather than go down that route of producing these pads essentially took the examples of the gas masks they captured from the germans and copied these to produce their own mask and they would go on to produce a number of different gas masks throughout the war we won't discuss them all here i'm going to put some leads to books on gas warfare in the first world war and simon jones's book on the employment and the countermeasures against gas in the osprey series is a particularly recommended title and i'll put that on the podcast website for you to follow that up but the french having copied this style of mask they put in an order for a hundred thousand of them to go into production and that gave their troops at least some chance on the battlefield to protect themselves against these poisonous gases. 
but it was clear in the British and Empire Commonwealth forces that the reliance on this Mark II style of mask, which was just one up, only slightly one up from the original improvised mask that we used, would not be good enough to protect the troops as the war moved forward. So the development of proper gas masks began in 1915 as the Second Battle of Ypres was still going on. And the first of these was the so-called hypo helmet, often also described as the smoke helmet. And this was a hood, a material hood, that was pulled over the head. It had a letterbox-style eyepiece, kind of mica material, that you could see through. So you took the mask, pulled it right over your head, tucked it inside your tunic, did the button-up, and then you adjusted the hood and you looked through the mica eyepiece. And the hypo that we're talking about here is the chemical that the material of the mask was impregnated with to give you some anti-gas measures and this was a, a chemical solution consisting of glycerin and sodium thiosulfate for those of you who are chemists out there the first of these hypo helmets were issued to british troops at the tail end of the second battle of Ypres in may 1915 when a thousand of them were made available for each division now, considering that there are 12 infantry battalions in a division and that each of those could be at full strength, a thousand officers and men, I mean, very few battalions in May 1915 had that kind of strength in them, but you're still talking about hundreds of men in an infantry battalion, a thousand masks per division was nowhere near enough. So there was still a reliance on the improvised masks at that stage. Enough of these hypo helmets could not be produced at that point. They also went to some factories in northern France that produced a piece of gardening equipment, before the war of course, to spray your garden with chemicals with weed killer. And they weren't after the weed killer, but they were after the sprayers, the vermirol sprayers. And these were tanks that were strapped to the back of a soldier with a tube coming out onto a, a lance, basically, where you'd squeeze it to spray the solution that was in the canister out in front of you in this case they used the, the hypo solution and this would be employed in the trenches men would go up a trench that was saturated with the chlorine gas it would hang around in the trenches and the shell holes and to dissipate the gas to get rid of it you'd pump away at the vermirol sprayer and spray this hypo stuff everywhere and the gas would in theory disperse but I guess that would not be the top of any soldier's task to volunteer for, to go up a trench full of chlorine gas with a vermirol sprayer and spray it about. But there are examples of these things in quite a few museums on the Western Front, and I'm pretty sure there's one in the Imperial War Museum as well. And there are photographs of officers wearing them and using them in the trenches of the Western Front. Now, while the hypo helmets and numbers of those available to the troops increased, could protect against chlorine gas once the type of gases employed by the Germans began to change and they began to use phosgene gas it would not protect against that so a new type of gas mask was then developed called the P helmet and the P was phenate another type of chemical that the hood was impregnated with and this was another kind of improvement on the hypo helmet which had that mica eyepiece which could crack and break easily 
and wasn't very clear to see through. This new helmet was a hood as well that was impregnated with the chemical that again you wore over your head. You pulled the hood right down over your head and face and you, again you tucked it into your tunic. You didn't wear it over the top of your tunic because gas could obviously get up underneath. So you tucked it right inside your tunic. You opened your tunic buttons up, tucked the mask in there, then did the tunic up and pulled it out to the sides to push it out a little bit so your head was in there. And instead of having mica eyepieces, this had metal and glass eyepieces that you could see through. Now, it got pretty warm in there, and they would steam up, basically. So visibility was still pretty narrow in terms of when you were wearing these masks. They did develop a cream that you could rub onto the eyepieces to stop them from misting up. But, you know, you couldn't ask the Germans to stop gassing you for five minutes while you rub the cream onto your eyepieces so you could see what you were doing. And I don't know how effective that was really in helping soldiers actually employ these masks. But it became a style of gas mask that was used by the British Army for a big chunk of the war. And it consisted of two layers of cotton flannelette that was then impregnated with the chemical. The eyepieces, as we've said, to actually see out of the mask. And there was a valve also inside the mask, a metal tube with a leather, it looked like a kind of a flapper, almost like a beak sticking out of the front of the mask that you then breathed out when you were wearing the mask. And it was quite a long one. I used to have an original helmet of this design that was given to me by my old friend John Dre. He got it from a, a Great War veteran and it sat up in John's loft for years and he said, oh, you might as well have it. And I had it for many years. And it was, I mean, I only just kind of put it over my head a couple of times just to see what it was like wearing these things. It was pretty claustrophobic in there and you couldn't see much out of the eyepieces. But I remember that the tube was quite long and I could see soldiers kind of almost gagging if they were kind of putting that in their mouth, particularly in action when you're kind of hyped up and actions taking place around you. It was not the most comfortable design of mask, but it was effective against chlorine and against the new gases that were coming in and by November of 1915 towards the end of that year when gas had been used for the first time one of these P helmets was available for every British and Empire soldier on the Western Front they all had them British Canadian Indian and the other Empire Commonwealth nations that would arrive in subsequent years Again, in response to the development of gases, this type of mask was adapted and became the Phenate Hexamine Helmet, or PH Helmet, and this was worn from late 1915 through to late 1916. It was rolled up when it was not in use and put in a little bag with a strap with a couple of small little buttons, and you often can see soldiers on active service. I have a lot of postcards of soldiers when they're out of the line. They've always got their gas mask with them because you never know when a gas or a gas shell is going to come over, and they're wearing this kind of little side bag which the mask was kept in. And in action, then you'd undo the buttons of it, pull the mask out, and rapidly deploy the mask and put it over your head. And even when later styles of gas masks came in, a lot of soldiers kept the PH helmet in its little bag, which was quite light to carry. You could tuck it under your webbing gear or your 14-pattern leather equipment. They kept that as a backup in case their main mask ever failed. 
So into and during the Battle of the Somme in 1916, the PH helmet was the standard kind of gas mask that was worn by all of the British and Empire soldiers that fought in that battle. There are some classic images of that period of the war, the, the machine gunners of the machine gun corps firing a Vickers gun wearing the PH helmets, for example. So that was the kind of mask they had then. But it was realised that this was still probably inferior to some of the gas masks that were being used, certainly by the Germans and also by our French allies. So development of a new proper type of gas mask was underway in 1916. And initially it was known as the large box respirator. It was issued in small numbers to test it, basically, within units on the Western Front. But it was too big, it was too cumbersome, really, for the soldiers and that they carried enough equipment as it as it was so a smaller compact version was required and this became the small box respirator or the SBR and it was developed by a chap called Edward Harrison who was a chemist who was an overage soldier we often hear about underage soldiers he was above the usual age categories of military service he was 47 and he'd served overseas at that age and then come back to work on this mask. And Edward Harrison, a real hero of this story in many respects, tested this mask, because this was the only way of doing it, on himself. So he would wear the developed masks that they were working on and go into a room full of gas, and if it didn't work, he would suffer the consequences of that, and it played on his health terribly and resulted in his death. So he gave his life, really, in the development of this mask to save, eventually, countless thousands of men on the battlefields of the Great War. So the SBR, the small box respirator, was a proper gas mask. It was a face mask that was fixed to the face like the German and some of the French designs with straps, rubberized straps that went over the back of your head and secured the mask to your face. It had two eyepieces it had a little clip inside that fixed over your nose and there was a an angled breathing apparatus that went into the tube that fed down into the filter and you breathed through that filter which was held in a bag that would then be placed on your chest you carried it perhaps on your haversack when not in action or slung in the same way you'd sling the bag that the ph helmet was in it was a bigger bag to have the mask and the filter in there which was a canister basically but in action you'd have to deploy the bag on your chest so that the canister was rested in front of you and the tube then came up into the mask and the mask obviously was on your head and we'll put some photographs of some of these masks onto the podcast website so you can see what I'm talking about in the development of the gas mask that the British and Commonwealth Empire forces used during the Great War. 100,000 of these SBR small box respirator masks were ordered in the summer of 1916 and the first began to arrive in significant numbers on the front line in August and September of that year. So towards the tail end of the Battle of the Somme that was a transition period between the use of the PH helmet and this new proper modern gas mask and by the time of the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line and the battles of Arras in April of 1917, most British soldiers were using the SBR, although, like I said, many of them kept the PH helmet as a backup. 
probably well into 1918. You can see that in some of the 1918 photographs as well. Now, this mask gave much better protection. It was a proper gas mask, not dissimilar to the types used in the Second World War, not dissimilar to the types of masks still largely in use to this day. But it was not ultimate protection. The mask could fail. The soldier could put it on incorrectly and gas could get in. They could get too hot inside the mask and some soldiers pulled the mask off and were gassed. The Germans could chuck tear gas into a gas attack to cause soldiers' eyes to weep and that could result in the mask being torn off and then breathing in the poison gases. And also you remember that in action they wore it on their chest. So if shrapnel or bullets were flying around and even if a bullet didn't come through the gas mask and hit the soldier, if it went at an angle and damaged the mask or damaged the filter, the canister, then the mask would not be operable. There are stories of soldiers pulling out their mask to place it on their faces in action once gas drops onto their part of the battlefield, only to discover that, unknown to them, a bullet has gone straight through their gas mask bag and has broken the eyepieces or has pierced the cloth material of the mask, and it's useless. So despite gas masks casualties from gas never went away right up until the last moments of the first world war now masks have been developed how had gas itself changed as the war progressed the british first used poison gas at the battle of Luz in 1915 they felt that as the germans had now employed it on the battlefield despite the hague convention it was legitimate for the british armed forces to use it as well they had established special companies of the Royal Engineers to employ their gas on the battlefield and on the 25th of September 1915 gas was released from more than 5,900 gas cylinders on the Luz battlefield on that flat open landscape of Luz, ideal for the use of gas it was thought to move that gas in a cloud just like the Germans had used it across the battlefields to the German positions beyond and it was effective in some locations particularly in hollows the village of Luz sits in a big hollow and gas collected there but in some areas and we've got some good eyewitness accounts of this from the likes of Robert Graves for example who was there the gas drifted back onto the attacking British troops who had their helmets rolled up you remember like Harry Coates who was there with the London Scottish and they were gassed by their own gas in that attack. So it wasn't always a favourable way of using gas. If the wind changed after zero hour, which is what happened at Luz, and the gas blew back onto your men, you could end up suffering as many, if not more, casualties from your very own weapon. Following on from chlorine gas, the deployment of chlorine gas, phosgene was the next gas that was employed eventually by both sides in 1915. And the first big phosgene attack against British troops was at Bozinger, just north of Ypres, on the 19th of December 1915. Phosgene was ten times more lethal and toxic than chlorine gas. And it had a kind of a delayed effect. Soldiers could breathe it in and seemed okay, but then hours later they would suffer and even die from the effects of having inhaled the phosgene gas. On the 19th of December 1915, in that action around Bozinger, close to where Yorkshire Trench is today, these were positions that had been taken over from the French after the Second Battle of Ypres, and so it kind of overlooked the area where gas had been used for the first time, 
and here this big Fosgene attack was made against units of the 49th West Riding Division. This is the Yorkshire Territorial Division that held that part of the line for about a year from 1915 into 1916. And where I sit recording this in South Yorkshire in Elsica, the local battalion the 1st, 5th, York and Lanx was very much involved in that. The Hoyland Company, which had men from Hoyland and Elsica, there was a Barnsley Company, there was a Rotherham Company, they were all involved in that. Men of the Duke of Wellingtons, the Duke of Boots, the West Riding Regiment, they were also involved in this. And all of those units were heavily gassed by this phosgene gas, causing far more casualties. And you see this in quite a lot of the cemeteries in that area, Essex Farm for example, that many of you will go to to visit the grave of Valentine Strudwick or Thomas Barrett VC. There are quite a few 19th of December 1915 casualties in there, so look for those next time you visit. So Fosgene was a game-changer and a gas that was used by both sides. The problem with any kind of gas release in that first year of its use was that it was a cloud that was weather dependent. There had to be the right conditions for the gas to accumulate and then the right weather conditions for it to be carried across the battlefield. And as we saw with Luz, if the wind changed direction, then you had problems. It would be blown back onto your own force. So both sides began to develop ways of delivering gas to the enemy in shells, with gas shells, using normal high explosive shells with a canister or a bottle inside with liquid gas in there that when the shell exploded would shatter, releasing the gas and it meant that you could then saturate an entire area with poison gas by firing shells into it rather than relying on the elements, the weather, to get it there. So this became a more effective way of using poison gas and it meant that by using normal artillery shells gas was not just used in big attacks it could be used in the day-to-day -day activities of trench warfare randomly gas an enemy position just drop some shells onto it saturate it with whatever gas was inside and again going back to talking to the veterans in the 80s and 90s many of them recounted experiences in which all of a sudden the alarm went off gas 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 and there was a soldier ringing a gas alarm and gas alarms were important parts of trench equipment they could be a shell case hung upside down on a piece of wood which you hit with a, a metal rod to create a noise to indicate that that was the alarm for the gas attack that a gas attack was coming in or they cast special bells gas alarm bells that were hung from positions within the trench and you'd ring the bell i found one of those on the hohenzollern redoubt battlefield some years ago there were gas rattles too bit like a football rattle which you'd swing round and it would create this clapperboard kind of noise to indicate that that was the alarm for the gas attack and then later in the war they had klaxons that were used in the trench to create a very loud noise that soldiers could hear above the din of bombardments to indicate that gas was coming in and the most common one of those was a strombus horn which is a, a big horn that would let out a very shrill noise and it was powered by compressed air. Again, you see photographs of those in the trenches or on buildings behind the lines. So gas became a weapon that soldiers had to deal with even when they were just holding the line. Not fighting, not attacking, not defending, but just by holding the line. And there are many places on the battlefield 
where you see evidence of random gas attacks taking place in what were sectors that were commonly described as quiet, in inverted commas. But while the British developed their own gas shells, they also developed a new weapon to project that gas, to fire that gas in canisters, and this was the Livens projector, designed by Captain William Livens of the Royal Engineers. It was a big metal tube, like a test tube, it's kind of shape, buried into the ground. It sat on a base that absorbed the recoil when it fired, and that was often described as a Mexican hat. It was the shape of a Mexican hat, tipped upside down, and the tube would be slotted into it. There would be a, a command wire, a firing wire, that was dug into the hole in the base of the tube where a charge would be placed and then the canister that had gas in it, sausage-shaped canister, was slotted into the tube and then the whole thing was fired electrically. So dozens if not hundreds of these tubes were dug into the ground in an area where one of these Livens batteries was set up and then an officer would press a plunger and they'd all fire simultaneously and fire these sausage-shaped projectiles over the battlefield onto the German positions. And these were first deployed in significant numbers at places like Mouquet Farm on the Somme and in the attack on the Wire Ravine at Beaumont Hamel. When I first used to go to the Wire Ravine in the 80s, there were Livens, burst open Livens canisters scattered in the shell holes close to the Wire Ravine. And it was only when I began to research that and found a report on the use of Livens projectors there that I realised that these were amongst the very first Livens projectors the actual canisters to be used against the German forces during that period of the Battle of the Somme. But it became an ever-increasingly used weapon with something like 100,000 of these bombs being fired in 1917 alone. The final gas that we'll mention, which is probably one of the most feared gases of the entire Great War, and that was mustard gas. It was introduced by the Germans at Ypres on the 12th, 13th of July 1917, it was a gas that didn't just asphyxiate soldiers, it burned, it was a chemical agent. And when the first casualties from mustard gas came in, they found that there were very severe blisters from the gas on the skin, particularly in the areas of the soldiers' buttocks, their genitals, and under their armpits as well. Anywhere where they sweated, basically, it seems to have affected greatly. It burned their eyes and it could cause temporary or even permanent blindness if enough of the mustard gas got in there. In the first use of this mustard gas, there were something like 15,000 casualties, of which about 2 or 3% died. So despite its ferocity, it wasn't a gas that killed everybody, but it caused injuries that would have far more repercussions than some of the earlier gases, although anyone who breathed in poison gas, their lungs were never the same again. My, my uncle Dan died in 1969 as a direct result of having been gassed in Borlon Wood in 1917, for example. Mustard gas became increasingly the predominant gas used on battlefields of 1918. It was used extensively by the Germans in Operation Georgette in April 1918, what we'd call the Battle of the Lease when a third of all the gas used in that operation was mustard gas, and the British used it in the final phase of the Great War as well. It was said that Adolf Hitler was gassed by British mustard gas when he was on a hill overlooking the Messines Ridge just across the border in northern France, close to where in some respects his war had begun four years before, and his positions were hit by mustard gas 
and he was temporarily blinded as a consequence of it. So by the end of the conflict on the Western Front, by the end of the Great War, gas was a weapon that had been used by all belligerents on not just the Western Front, but on some other theatres of war as well. The Americans who joined the Allied cause in 1917 also embraced the use of gas. They wore a gas mask very similar to the small box respirator and they used gas in their artillery throughout their battles on the Western Front in the final phase of the conflict. For example, in one attack on the 1st of November 1918, the American Expeditionary Force fired over 36,000 mustard gas shells in the Verdun sector. By the end of the Great War, gas had caused at least a million casualties. I think the exact number is impossible to compute, really. But it wasn't just the casualties from gas, it was the fear factor that gas had as well. The fear in troops of being gassed, of coming under a gas attack, of having to put that claustrophobic mask on to protect themselves. It was something that stayed with them, with the veterans, for the rest of their lives. And that father of chemical warfare, the father of gas, poison gas being used on the battlefields, Fritz Haber, was given a Nobel Prize in 1918. He went on to develop other gases, and despite the 1925 Geneva Protocol on the use of gas and chemical weapons that prohibited them, one of the gases that he developed, Zyklon B, went on to be used by Nazi Germany in the gas chambers in the Holocaust. But Fritz Haber never lived to see that, never lived to see the outcome, that outcome of his work. He saw plenty of the outcome during the First World War, but he fled Germany in 1933 as the Nazis came to power, dying the following year. Fritz Haber's legacy was the poisonous cloud, his cruel legacy to humanity. And while gas warfare began in the trenches of Flanders in 1915, and gas would be used to murder countless numbers in the Holocaust a generation later, gas warfare, chemical warfare, is not confined to the pages of history. It's a modern reality. The war in Syria has seen the use of chemical weapons again. It's not something locked in the past. And that's a sad reality, something that I'm always mindful of when I explain this to groups on the battlefields of the Great War where gas was used. So we've looked at its background and its history. In our next and final section, we'll look at what we can find of that first use of gas and gas warfare on the battlefields today. Considering that gas was used from 1915 until the very last days of the Great War and right across the Western Front, there are many places that we could visit that connect us the story of gas warfare in that conflict. And in some respects, we could start with one of the French or Belgian bomb disposal units that have to deal with the legacy of this gas warfare more than a century later, because amongst the iron harvest of shells and munitions that are found each year when the battlefields of the Great War are ploughed, up comes an arsenal just not of high explosive and shrapnel, but of gas as well. Gas shells, Livens projectors, the sausage-shaped bombs full of gas, and all the other devices that gas 
was transported and used from, including, in some cases, gas cylinders. When you visit Thiepval Wood on the Somme, you'll hear the story of how a gas canister from 1915 was found during the excavation of the trenches there. So it's another legacy of the First World War, another indication that that last page of the history of the Great War would never be turned because these artefacts, gas, shrapnel, everything else will continue to be found for many, many decades, if not centuries, to come. But let's try and do this in a meaningful area and let's use the area where gas was employed for the first time at Flanders in 1915 as a way for us to visit a bit of the Western Front and get an understanding of gas warfare and how it fits into the landscape of those battlefields today. And we'll start not at the obvious place. You're probably thinking we're going to start at Vancouver Corner. We're not. We're going to start at Steenstraat, just to the north of Ypres, close to the Isar Canal, which was in the area of the French forces that held the front line around Langemark when gas was released on the evening of the 22nd of April 1915. In the 1920s, a memorial was constructed at Steenstraat to commemorate the French soldiers who had died during that first gas attack. And it was a column monument with some very, very graphic symbolism of poilus of French soldiers asphyxiating, choking in the chlorine gas cloud that had engulfed them. Now, this is one of those locations which connects World War I with World War II because after the fall of France and Belgium and the Netherlands in 1940, the German occupying forces went across the landscape, visited many of these First World War sites. Hitler had apparently given this order that the memorials and the cemeteries should be left alone and respected. But the Germans took exception to this gas attack memorial here at Steenstraat, and in 1941 they blew it up. So what we've got today is a 1960s replacement, which is a kind of a mound with a huge metal cross coming out of the top of it, very, very different to the memorial that was, was here before. But it is a gas attack memorial and a good place to start this tour. And from here we'll head across those battlefields on the other side of the Isa over to Langemark itself to the German cemetery. Now not because we're going to visit the graves of German soldiers killed in that first release of gas during the Second Battle of Ypres but because on the far side of Langemark German Cemetery is one of the points where the gas was released on that very first day that gas was used. It was the site of a memorial service in the centenary of the gas attack in April 2015. And you can see some of the trees that are planted around the Eat battlefield marking the front line, showing you where the front lines were at that point. So there you are on literally a spot where gas was released for the very first time. From there we'll swing back down towards the Isa Canal and in doing so we're following the path of the withdrawing French soldiers as they were pushed back by the gas attack through Langemark back over the Pilkelm Ridge to the area close to the Isa Canal at Bozinger where the line held and those French soldiers dug in and constructed a new trench system there. But en route to that as we come over the Pilkelm Ridge we come to an area that we would probably associate more with the 1917 battles where the men of the 38th Welsh Division fought at the very beginning of the Third Battle of Ypres. There's Artillery Wood Cemetery there. But there's also a French memorial here, the Calvaire Dolmen, 
a memorial stone and a cross commemorating the Bretons, the men from Brittany, who were part of that territorial division. The cross, I think, is a 16th century cross brought from southern France to be placed here, and the dolmen is a memorial stone that comes from near St. Malo and is typical of the kind of stone that would be constructed on memorial sites way back into perhaps medieval times or beyond. So it's stone from the region that these men came from and imagery and designs that are familiar on their own landscape of southern France. There's also a fantastic orientation table here as well that shows a map of the battlefield in the area where gas was released and the area where the French were fighting. They're often overlooked in the battles of Flanders, the French, and they're a massively important part of our understanding of the war around Ypres during all four years of the Great War. So it's important to come here. From there, we'll go up to probably where you thought we'd start, which is the Canadian Memorial at Vancouver Corner. This year marks its centenary. It was unveiled in July 1923, and it commemorates those men of the 1st Canadian Division who fought in that ground beyond St Julian, around Vancouver Corner, facing the Germans as they advanced from Polkapel, with the French on their flank, their line having collapsed. The Canadians found themselves very much at the tip of the spear here, and as we mentioned in that two-day period, they suffered terrible casualties here, over 2,000 killed. The Brooding Soldier Memorial was part of a competition of designs of standard Canadian memorials to be placed on all of the battle sites where Canada had fought in the Great War. This was a generic design, so this is a monument really commemorating only 15, so he shouldn't have a steel helmet, but it was meant to be a generic design. But when it was placed here, it was felt to be such a magnificent memorial that it wasn't to be duplicated, so a different design was used on the other Canadian sites and what Henry Williamson called the genius of the salient, his favourite Great War memorial here in Flanders. It stands here unique looking out across this landscape where the gas attack unfolded during that Second Battle of Ypres in 1915. From there we'll jump away from the Second Battle of Ypres to the static warfare period and we'll go down to the Zwanhof near to the industrial site at Bosinger, close to Yorkshire Trench. The Zwanhof is a free visitor centre. It's an, what they call an entry point into the Ypres battlefields. There are three of them around Ypres. The one here at Zwanhof, one outside Hoo Crater Museum on the Menin Road, and the other one down on the Bluff. And as you go in, there's a fantastic display of artefacts, including a vermeroll sprayer, which we mentioned earlier in the podcast, and an excellent little film to watch there, and it sets the scene. And this is where that big Fosgene gas attack took place against the men of the 49th West Riding Division in December of 1915. And when the diggers excavated this site in the forgotten battlefield period when the diggers were working, which we've covered quite a lot in different podcasts, they found a lot of evidence of that 1915 fighting and the occupation of this sector by men of the West Riding Division at the bodies of soldiers from the York and Lancaster Regiment, for example, in the area of the old no-man's land. So this is an area that ties us to that 19th of December 1915 battlefield. And if we went to the cemeteries close to here, places like Essex Farm, but also Bard Cottage and Talana Farm, we would find some evidence of the dead from that period. And if we followed it back to where the casualty clearing stations were, a lot of these men died of their wounds. You remember the delayed effects of phosgene gas, so you'll find them in many of the cemeteries behind the lines as well. 
From there, we'll go over to Porteza, to the St. Charles de Porteza French Cemetery, which is the main French burial ground in Flanders from the First World War. There are some other French graves scattered around in different locations, but this is the main French cemetery. Here are some of the dead from that Second Battle of Ypres. So you'll find colonial soldiers from the Zouave and the Tyrolleur regiments, and you'll find the territorials from Breton, southern France, who were in the territorial division that were fought alongside them as the gas came across the battlefield into their trenches. But the graves here only account for some of the dead because French families had the right to repatriate the dead to France to be buried in civil cemeteries in family graves, and some from this battlefield were moved to places French national cemeteries like Notre-Dame-de-Lorette after the war as well. And also the missing, they're not commemorated anywhere. The French have no memorials to the missing, so they're dead that were often buried by the Germans on the battlefield. They are not commemorated anywhere except on their own war memorials in whatever part of France that they come from. From the French cemetery, we'll move just down the road to a small collection of British cemeteries near to the site of Porteza Chateau. That was just behind the British front line from the end of the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915 up to the beginning of the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917. And in August 1916, the line here was held by the 2nd Battalion of the Hampshire Regiment. They were a regular army battalion that had fought at Gallipoli in 1915 on the Somme and had moved up from the Somme after some crippling casualties there to a quiet sector here at Porteza near Ypres when they came under a concerted German gas attack which overwhelmed their trenches and caused considerable casualties to that battalion. And you find some of those killed in the immediate front line who were buried in these battlefield cemeteries. And then again you can follow them back through the evacuation route of the wounded to different casualty clearing stations, to probably about another half dozen different cemeteries, right back to Lissenherk, behind Popperinger, where you'll find some of them there as well, and possibly even at base hospitals over on the French coast. So this is an example of casualties from an actual gas attack in a specific area, which we can find pinned down to a location on the landscape as it is today. And then from there, we'll make our way down to the outskirts of the city of Ypres and stand in front of the Menin Gate Memorial, which commemorates 55,000 British and Commonwealth soldiers who fell at Ypres from 1914 until partway through the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917 and have no known grave. And when we stand there, we scan across the lists of the Canadians and the British soldiers who fell in that opening phase of Second Deep in the first release of poison gas, that birth of chemical warfare, you wonder how many tragic, terrible stories lie behind those names of men whose bodies were never found. When we take this journey across the battlefields of the Great War, we're following, really, one of the darker episodes, the darker paths along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, 
you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>